If you have a Bible, you'll want to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll start reading in verse 10. Uh, the title this morning, Soldier, as we become, this morning's sermon, is We Become God's Soldiers. Uh, all semester in RUF, we studied God's transforming grace from the book of Ephesians. Uh, and each week, we looked at how God transformed our lives and this world through the person and work of Jesus. This morning, we'll finish that study uh, by studying this passage. So please read along with me. This is Ephesians chapter 6, starting verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. Uh, We can't understand and apply God's word without God's spirit, so let's pray and ask God to help us. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for giving us your word and your spirit and your son. We pray right now that as we come to this passage, that you would open our eyes to the spiritual battles going on in this world. Those battles are waged in our hearts, in our homes, and in our community. Help us to see um, that we don't struggle against the flesh and blood. We don't struggle against the friends and the family members around us. We struggle against the spiritual forces at work in this world that wage war against you and against us. Please, please, equip us and strengthen us for the battle. We know that you've given us everything we need in Christ for life and godliness. We pray now that you'd help us to understand that and learn more about that through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, all semester we've been looking at God's transforming grace and the way that God is transforming things. And we've, I've told several stories about Uh, God's transforming power. Well, I think some of the greatest transformation stories are stories where the hero switches sides, where the bad guy becomes good, where the dark side switches to light, where the villain becomes a hero. Uh, In fiction, we cheer when people like Kylo Ren switch from the dark side to the light side, Uh, when Servius Snape double-crosses Lord Voldemort. And when Terminator transforms from the hunter to the protector. 
Uh, in real life, we make movies about people like Frank Abagnale, who wrote $2.5 million of fraudulent checks, went to prison, and then came out and now works for the government checking uh, for fraud. In Christian history, we tell stories and we celebrate people like Chuck Colson, who went to prison for his role in the Watergate scandal, only to become converted and then start uh, the prison fellowship ministry that now shares the gospel with prisoners all over the nation. We revere uh, people like C.S. Lewis and Lee, Lee Strobel, who were atheists and then converted to Christianity and become renowned authors and apologists. Those are great stories. But the amazing thing is that in God's plan of cosmic redemption, our redemption stories are actually no less dramatic. Through the person and work of Jesus, God has reconciled the entire cosmos to himself, even us. He has transformed us from spiritually dead, rebellious children of wrath into his holy and blameless children that he dearly loves. He has brought us into this new community called the church, and he has enabled us by the Holy Spirit to live out our new identity as sons and daughters in his new community. He has uh, transformed workaholic, perfectionistic country boys into ministers who preach the gospel of grace and rest. He has transformed self-righteous, self-reliant, good Christian girls into humble, faithful servants of the poor and the needy. Um, the dramatic transformation stories uh, where the bad go to good and the, the villain go to evil are as numerous, I'm sorry, the villain goes to hero, are as numerous in God's church as the stars are in the sky. It's a great, and it's a wonderful story. It's good news but here's the problem. It doesn't come easy, right? We all know it doesn't come easy. God's cosmic redemption comes with cosmic conflict. Uh, despite ultimately defeating Satan's sin and death on the cross through Jesus, uh, a war still rages, a war between the cosmic forces of good and evil. And Paul describes that war in verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, uh, we don't know exactly what all these terms mean, but we know that in general what Paul is saying is that there are these spiritual intelligent beings that make up the spiritual forces of evil. Uh, earlier on, he, refer he referred in Ephesians 2 to the prince of the power of the air, that's generally considered to be Satan. And here, these principalities and powers are his minions that operate in his kingdom. And we know that it's this, these spiritual forces, along with the fallen world around us and the fallen flesh within us, that war against us every day. They war against Christ and his kingdom. We struggle with these intelligent demonic forces. They are powerful, they're wicked and they're crafty. And they seek to destroy everything that God has done. They seek to, to rebuild the walls of racism and classism that God has tore down. They seek to bring disunity between church and family where God has brought unity. 
They seek to seduce Christians in behavior, into behavior that brings shame and guilt where God has brought righteousness and life. These battles have spanned human history and they take place each and every day in our hearts, in our homes, in our communities, and they threaten to unravel God's cosmic reconciliation. But God has a plan to win the battles. Those whom he rescues, us, he also enlists in his army. And those he enlists in his army, he also equips. And those he equips, he also empowers and encourages to do one thing. It says it four times in this passage, to stand firm. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 tells us that we need to stand firm against the spiritual forces of evil that wage war against Christ and his kingdom on earth. So this morning as we study this passage, what I want you to see is that we can stand firm in the battle because God has given us his strength, his armor, and his victory. And I want to apply it to a very specific and relevant situation and that is personal conflict with our friends and family members. So the first thing we're going to look at is that we can stand firm because God has given us his strength. If you look at verse 10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, most uh, commentators agree that this, the way this is translated in English sort of loses some of the force. Right? This is a command, but it's what they call a passive present. And that means that we currently have God's strength that we can currently use, that it's with us, that we have it, but we have to use it, right? So it can be translated, find your strength in the Lord or strengthen yourselves in the Lord, right? It's a a command. God is telling us to use what he's already given us, this power that's within us. All right, this power is the same power that God used to put the starry heavens in their place and hold them there. It's the same power that Jesus promised to his believers when he said he would give them the Holy Spirit. It's the same power that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesians uh, 2. Paul prayed that the Ephesians church would be strengthened in power in the knowledge of God. It's the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. It's the same power that God used to rescue us from our slavery to sin and to equip us to do the work of ministry. It's God's power that he gives us. And it's God's power that we get to use to fight his battles. So this means that when we experience the evil forces in this world, We can stand firm because we don't stand in our own strength. We stand in God's strength. Okay, so sounds all pie in the sky. What does this look like? Okay, so let me paint a somewhat hypothetical picture for you that may or may not have happened last week. You're at home with your family because of a worldwide pandemic. Okay, that's the fallenness of this world affecting all of us. And somehow your entire family has to figure out how to live and work all in the same space at the same time. So you are working on your work while your spouse is homeschooling the kids, right? And then later that day, you're supposed to watch the kids while your spouse does their work. But while you're supposed to watch the kids, your work isn't actually done. 
And not only that, but your kids want to watch YouTube that they've already watched for like 10 hours that week. And so immediately you're here with this tension of like, okay, how am I going to get my work done and get the approval that my flesh needs? And how am I going to be the good spouse by letting my spouse work on their work because they need to work too? And how am I going to be the good parent by not letting my kid watch 10 hours of YouTube a day? And it's in the middle of that tension that you begin to blame the coronavirus and the government and the city for shutting everything down. You begin to blame yourself for being too perfectionistic. You begin to blame your family because they're too demanding. And then you yell and you get mad and you feel ashamed and guilty because you've yelled and you got mad. And therein is the battle. There's a war. The spiritual forces of evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil are all conspiring in that moment to wage war against Christ and his kingdom. So what do we do? Okay, so the, we have to stop and pause and realize that the battle is not, the real enemy is not your family. It's not the government. It's not your work. It's not YouTube. The real battle is against the self-righteousness and fear that comes from your flesh. It's against the performance-based spirituality of the Christian subculture. It's against Satan and his minions that are shooting fiery darts of shame and guilt at you in that moment. The real battle is a war for your soul against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, not against your family and your friends. So how do we respond? Well, there's three ways you could respond. There's three ways that we may or may not respond in those situations. The first is to simply act on our impulse, right? To do your emotions. You're angry, so you let your anger out. You're self-righteous, so you let your self-righteousness out. You're insecure, you're scared, so you react out of insecurity and fear. But what you're doing in that moment is you're acting out of your own strength. There's a second way that you can respond. And I'm going to call this the name it and claim it way. This is the spiritual Christian way to respond. I'm going to name that evil force and I'm going to claim power over it. I cast out you, Satan. I cast out fear. I cast out doubt. I cast out insecurity. I cast out self-righteousness. Now that sounds really good and spiritual, but what are you doing in that moment if you take that approach? You're relying on your own strength. Do I have the power to cast out self-righteousness? No. Do I have the power to cast out Satan? No. Do I have the power to not be afraid when I'm afraid? No. That is a pseudo form of Christianity that is just more legalism. That's not the right way to, to battle spiritual forces of evil either. The third way, and the only way, is to respond in God's strength. What does that look like? I think it looks like pausing, just stopping, just stopping. In between the stimulus, which is the conflict, and the response, which is your reaction, create a gap, create a pause where you can do three things. You can affirm 
ask and act. The first thing you do is you affirm, right? You do have legitimate needs to get your work done. Your spouse has legitimate needs to get their work done. Your kids have legitimate needs for attention. Those are all good things. Those are not the enemy. Then you ask for help. You ask your heavenly father to help you. You don't say, I cast out doubt. You say, heavenly father, I need you to help me with this doubt. You don't cast out Satan and self-righteousness. You say, Heavenly Father, I need you to drive out self-righteousness and Satan right now because I can't do it. And then you act in, in, a biblical, in a biblical way as best as you can. right? But we act in God's strength, not in our own. So we don't respond out of our emotions. We don't respond with some... Um, name it and claim it approach, we respond by asking the Lord in that moment to meet us and help us. So the first thing we can do to stand firm in the battle is to rely on God's strength. The second thing we can do, and the second thing we we have here in this passage is, is that we can stand firm because we have God's armor, right? God has not only called us in this battle, but he's equipped us in this battle. In verse 11, he gives us a command. He says, put on the whole armor of God. Right? There are two commands in this passage. Be strong in the Lord and put on the whole armor of God. And then in verses 13 through 18, you can see he doubles down on it, right? He repeats it. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And then he goes on to describe that armor. And he lists six pieces of armor. He gives their spiritual parallels. This is everything that we need for the fight. And I think it's important that it says that we put on the whole armor of God. So we can't piece this thing together and go, well, I only want a shield, or I only want a breastplate, or I only want the shoes. We have to put on all of these pieces to fight against these spiritual forces of evil. So I'm going to go through them, bullet point quickly, and just kind of explain a little bit about how these equip us for the battle. The first is the belt of truth. Now, the belt would hold all the garments of the soldier together, right? So you'd have, you'd have his, uh, everything from, head, you know, from his chest to the bottom would all be united with the belt, right? And this belt of truth is, is providing hidden strength. This is the truth of just being honest, of developing an honest character. And it could also be the truth of the Christian doctrines, that this, unforese- this sort of unseen, hidden truth lies in the word of God, that supports and strengthens everything. So that's the belt of truth. Then there's the, bl- the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, and the breastplate of righteousness probably covered the front and the back of the, shoulder, of the soldier. And obviously it protected all of his vital organs to make sure that they couldn't be hit. So this righteousness could be the righteousness that we develop in our lives as we live according to God's word. It's, there's a certain integrity about us as we read God's word, as we learn it, as we apply it to our lives. The second thing, I'm sorry, not the second, the third piece of equipment is the boots of the gospel of peace. Uh, so the Roman boots were designed to be agile and stable in battle, right? They had straps on them, but they had a solid, wide, uh, you know, foot, footing, they had a strap on the back. Maybe they looked something like really awesome Chacos, I don't know. But either way, they were strong and solid and stable. And they, they enabled this soldier to go out and, and be strong and stable in battle. 
And Paul calls that the gospel of peace, right? So when we have the gospel, it brings peace between us and God. And we get to go out and share that peace with others, right? There's, a, there's the, the stability and strength of peace that comes with the gospel. Uh, the fourth thing is the shield of faith. Uh, these shields are probably very large shields uh, that were wetted and covered. Uh, they were probably designed to be uh, joined together to make a big protection or to be held by one soldier, but they were designed to protect against fiery darts, so they would they'd have uh, arrows that were covered with pitch on the outside. They would light those, and they would shoot them, and so this shield was designed so that you could hold it up, and that fiery dart could hit it, and it would put it out, and it wouldn't be able to attack you. Well, for us, this shield of faith is the defense that God gives us against the shame and guilt that Satan sends to us. So when Romans 8 says there's now no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus, that's the shield of faith that we hold up in the battle when shame and guilt are being shot at us. There's the helmet of salvation, the helmet of the, the hope of the salvation. Uh, this helmet was probably metal and it's probably made of some, some thick metal that was designed to protect against obviously arrows hitting you or hammers or swords hitting you on the head, right? Well, this helmet is the assurance of our salvation that comes from knowing that Jesus Christ eternally secures us for salvation. That no matter what the, the evil forces do, that they can't steal our soul, that they can't ultimately defeat us. And the last uh, piece of equipment is the sword of the spirit, which was the word of God. This sword was probably a shorter sword uh, used for personal attack and for defense, right? So if you're looking through here, you probably notice that there's a lot of defensive equipment. This seems to be the one primary offensive piece of equipment that God gives his people. Uh, this sword is the word of God. It is scripture and the, the power of the spirit that lies in scripture. So whenever we're battling against these spiritual forces of evil, we can pull out the scriptures by the Holy Spirit, and we can use those to battle against the enemy. Now, lastly, it's not listed as a piece of armor, but Paul goes into prayer and begins to talk about how we can pray at all times for all people in all situations. And I think what Paul is doing here, and what God is doing, is he's, he's showing us that without prayer, we can't properly use the armor of God. The armor of God is essential I'm sorry, that prayer is essential for using the armor of God. Uh, Calvin alludes to this in this passage when he says in his commentary, to call upon God is the chief exercise of faith and hope. And it is the way that we obtain from God every blessing. We fight by praying at all times for all people in all situations. So let's go back to our conflict, right? You're in conflict, you're in the home, you're in a fight with a friend or family member, and there's this stimulus, which is the conflict, and then there's your response. In that gap between the stimulus and the response is where we pause and we use the armor that God has given us. We can think through all these things. It happens in a split second, but you can think through some of these tools that God has given you. Right? If you're feeling overwhelmed with shame and guilt because of the way that you're parenting or because of the way you've treated your roommate, you can think through, okay, 
Romans 8 says that there's not no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I don't have to respond out of shame and guilt in this situation. Because shame and guilt are not going to bring out the right response. What's going to bring out the right response is forgiveness and grace and love and mercy. So you, you create that space in between the stimulus and response where you can begin to think through these things and apply them. I heard a good illustration of this. Uh, this week, I was listening to a book uh, called The Healing Path by Dan Allender. In that book, he talks about how, God's, about how our pain can be a pathway to healing. And in it, he tells a story about a woman named Katrina. Uh, Katrina grew up a very talented, very wealthy, very successful young lady, uh, but she was also abused. And because she was abused, she threw herself into drugs and alcohol and immorality when she was in high school and college. Eventually, she got married, and this abuse and this immoral lifestyle sort of all crashed in on her at once, and she went through a depression. She told one of her friends, and her friend said, well, I really think you should go see a counselor. So she goes to see Dan Allender in counseling. She begins to open up about all the trauma in her life, and she begins to experience the health and the, the healing and the renewing power of the gospel. Well, at the same time, her marriage was in really bad shape. And so as she's healing, she wants to bring her husband into this healing. So she starts very forcibly, very aggressively trying to address all these issues in their marriage, and it only makes things worse. She, gets, she goes through a downward spiral where she gets angry at her husband, angry at God, angry at Allender. But then eventually the gospel sort of like brings her back to her senses. She continues to work on her marriage. Well, uh, things were struggling. They were hard until one night they were lying in bed and her husband asked her if they could be intimate. And she said no. And when she said no, he rolled over and he started pouting. And normally she, you know, I think Eleanor says normally she would have maybe been aggressive or she'd been antagonistic. Uh, normally, maybe he would have just continued pouting, and she would have continued reading her book. But in this moment, she chose instead to wrestle with the spiritual forces of evil going on there. So instead of just reading her book, she said to him, okay, you can roll over and pout, or we can talk. Um, if, you, if you roll over and talk, we're still not going to be intimate. But we can at least talk about what's going on in our marriage. But you can rest assured, if you stay over there and you pout, then, then we're going to become less likely to be intimate in the future. And something struck a chord with her husband. He rolled over. They started talking. They talked for an hour. And he later said that it was that conversation that changed their marriage. It was that conversation that brought healing to their marriage. There was a pause between the stimulus and the response. And in the middle of that pause, she was able to, to speak the truth in love to her husband in such a way as to bring hope and healing to their marriage. That's what the armor of God gives us. The armor of God gives us all the resources we need to fight the spiritual forces of evil with our friends and our family and our homes. Um, but if you're like me, you know that you can't... <laughs> That most of the time you don't do that well, you don't do it correctly, it doesn't work, um, 
that we still struggle with sin, uh, that it feels like the spiritual forces of evil are winning every day. And that's why it's important to remember that we can stand firm because God has strengthened us and because God has equipped us, but also because God is the one who's ultimately victorious. So when you read through all of the different pieces of equipment here in this passage, there's two ways to read it. You can read it as sort of character qualities and skills that Christians can develop. Or you can read it as gifts that God has given us through Jesus. Right? Both are legitimate. Both are legitimate. But I think the real beauty of this passage comes out when you begin to see how Jesus fulfills all of these different pieces of armor that God has given us. Right? Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. He holds everything together. He's the logos that holds the entire universe together, even us. Jesus is the breastplate of righteousness. It's his righteousness that rests on us by grace through faith every day. Jesus brings the gospel of peace. He preached the gospel of peace. He said, my peace I give to you. Right? The, the peace that we're looking for is not just the peace that we secure by being peacemakers, but it's peace that God gives us with him through Jesus. Um, Jesus himself upheld the shield of faith, right? When, when the devil was tempting him and the devil was shooting his fiery darts at Jesus, Jesus held the shield of faith the entire time. He withstood every fiery dart of the devil all the way to the cross where I'm sure at his weakest, sickest, most painful moments, the devil was hurling everything that he could at Jesus. Jesus never lost faith. He never gave up. He never quit. Even though he prayed, my God, my God, why do you forsake me? He also prayed, into your hands I commit my spirit. He trusted God to the end. Jesus wore the hope of salvation. He wore the helmet of the hope of salvation on his head. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And that joy was to see us in heaven as his dearly beloved children. And it's his perfect work that eternally secures us for salvation. And Jesus used the sword of the Spirit to battle the devil all the way to the end, to defeat him so that he could rise from the grave, he could ascend to heaven, he can rule and reign from there. And Revelation describes Jesus, the risen Savior, as having a double-edged sword coming from his mouth. That he still today has a sword that he wields against the devil. This passage doesn't just point us to be strong in the Lord and to put on this armor and to become uh, mighty soldiers of God. It points us to the mighty soldier who won the victory. We stand firm because God has won the battle through Jesus. And because we get to fight with him. Um, I started listening Reading is not the proper word. I started listening to the book, The Odyssey. Now, I'm sure I was probably supposed to read The Odyssey when I was in like middle school or high school, but I probably didn't. I probably sat around and wrote uh, notes to my friends 
and practice my autograph for whenever I become a professional baseball player. Aaron, you probably did that too whenever you were in junior. Yeah, yeah. so when everybody else was reading the Odyssey, Aaron and I were passing notes and, and working on our autograph. So I decided that as a 38-year-old man, I'm going to go back and I'm going to read the Odyssey, but then I thought it's too long and I probably won't finish it, so I'll just listen to it. So I started listening to the Odyssey, and it turns out it's actually a really good story, and I guess that's why people have been reading it for years and years and years. So if you don't know the Odyssey, like I didn't know the Odyssey, um, it's the story of Odysseus's return home. So Odysseus was in, fought in the Trojan Wars, and he was thought to be dead. For 20 years, he was gone. And while he was gone, these suitors, and the suitors were people who wanted to marry his wife, came and they inhabited his house, and they used up all of his resources, and they waited in hopes that they would be able to marry his wife and take his kingdom. Well, eventually, one day, Odysseus finishes the journey home, and he arrives home. When he comes home, he talks to his son, Telemachus, and he reveals himself to Telemachus, and he says, essentially, Telemachus, I'm going to defeat these suitors, and I'm going to reclaim my home. And we're going to, we're going to do this together. So they hatch this, this plan to sort of uh, uh, reveal himself to the suitors and to defeat them. Well, uh, eventually, the plan involves this, that they're all, all the suitors and, uh, and Telemachus and Odysseus are all at a banquet, and uh, Odysseus' wife comes out and says, I have Odysseus's bow. And whoever can string Odysseus's bow will be worthy to take Odysseus's place in my house. So all of the suitors try to string the bow, and none of them can do it. At this point, they don't know Odysseus is there. He's dressed up like a beggar. So finally, at the very end, after they all failed, Odysseus comes up, and he strings the bow immediately. And they've set up a, a sort of test that once you string the bow, they have 12 axe heads, and you have to shoot the arrow from the bow through the hole on those 12 axe heads and hit the target. So Odysseus raises up, strings the bow, draws the bow, shoots, and that arrow flies through those 12 axe heads and hits the target. And it's at that point when Odysseus reveals who he truly is, that he is Odysseus, and this home is his, and he is about to wage war and kill all the suitors that want to take his family. Well, at that moment, whenever Odysseus reveals himself and he's about to kill the suitors, what does Telemachus do? Telemachus grabs his sword, puts on his helmet, and readies himself for the fight. And I will tell you, whenever I heard that in the book, like the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. I thought, yes, that is it. That's what God is doing. Jesus is coming here in the spirit to drive out all of the suitors who were trying to destroy God's kingdom and take God's kingdom. And Jesus is the only one who can perfectly hit the mark to do that. And he is going to kill all these suitors. He, he's, he's won the war through his life, death, and resurrection. And now he's going to win the battle. He's going to drive them all over us, out of his house. And I get to join him. I get to pick up my sword and be along with him. Odysseus killed all the suitors. 
and restored order to his house. Jesus is one day, someday, going to fully and finally destroy all the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that are warring against his people and that are warring against you in your house. And we get to pick up the sword and fight with him. We get to battle with him. We get to be a part of God's redemption process in our home, with our friends, and our family members, and in our community. So let's pick up the sword. Let's fight. Let's wrestle. We can't lose, right? We have God's strength, we have God's armor, and we have God's victory. We certainly can't do it without the power of the Holy Spirit and prayer, as we've just seen. So let's pray that God will help us live out this passage. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for giving us this beautiful teaching about you and your kingdom and the way that you work. And we see that you have given us your power, your armor, and your victory in Jesus. Uh, We confess that we would love to live this out in our lives uh, with our friends and family members in our homes, but we are weak, we are foolish. Um, We have very powerful enemies that wage war against us. Uh, Ultimately, we can't defeat them on our own. We need you to do it. We're so thankful that you would use us in the process. Um, What a joy it is to be able to pick up our swords and battle along with you. God, we pray that you would help us to do it. We pray that you would do it through us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us to share the good news of peace and reconciliation with our spouses, with our kids, with our friends. We pray that the spiritual forces of evil would not be able to undo the cosmic redemption that you have done through Jesus. We pray that you continue to build your kingdom through us. In Jesus' name, amen.